Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're going to talk about 3D printing and firearms, which you may have heard about in the news. Oh, I've been hiking around uh, California trying to avoid the forest fires. Did something happen? Uh, I think you could say that, yeah. Uh, We have Professor Josh Blackman, who is representing the plaintiffs in the 3D printing cases, and so he will fill us in on all the details. Our guest today is Professor Josh Blackman, who is Associate Professor of Law at South Texas College of Law in Houston. Uh, He also represents Defense Distributed in a series of cases that have been in the news lately involving 3D printing and firearms, and so we're going to talk about that. Welcome, Professor Blackman. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm always excited when I hear a uh, Texas company in the news. So tell us a little bit about Defense Distributed, who they are, and uh, just why they're making headlines. Defense Distributed was founded by Cody Wilson uh, in about 2012, and <clears throat> his firm made headlines because he was the first person to um, create a fully functional firearm that could be 3D printed. It was a plastic one-shot pistol that he's able to make. And then Cody made further headlines when he put the, the 3D printing files to actually create that firearm on the internet. That decision triggered a now almost five-year-long saga between Cody, the federal government, and now a number of state governments. I can briefly summarize it. Um, shortly after the Sandy Hook mass killing, the Obama administration uh, uh, tried to find any way possible to stop Cody. Now, this might surprise you, but generally the government doesn't regulate the Internet. If I want to post a file, I have permission of the state. Uh, but the Obama administration left this old regulation which says that the State Department can regulate the export of technical data. And they interpreted that to mean, aha, that means we can regulate postings on the Internet. Even though this information was in the public domain, the government said, you need a license to put this file on the Internet. Of course, they didn't give Cody such a license. Of course, they weren't going to. So myself and a few other attorneys, we sued the Trump, uh, then Obama administration, arguing this violates a number of rights, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and some other administrative privileges. That case litigated through the courts for nearly three years. And after three years of litigation, we were about to reach a settlement with the State Department. And on the eve of the settlement, the Brady campaign, which is a gun control group, intervened. And they said, aha, we have to block the settlement. Otherwise, Cody will put these 3D printed files on the Internet. I actually had argued that case, and I uh, was able to defeat it. And the, the court denied the temporary restraining order. Uh, a couple of days later, two days later, we got sued in federal court in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania said putting files on the Internet violated state law. Uh, I was able to beat that temporary restraining order also. Then we fast forward to Monday. Uh, we got sued by New Jersey, a New Jersey state court. Uh, and they said that putting files on the Internet was a nuisance, the same way playing loud music for your neighbors. Um, <laughs> we beat that one also. But then the fourth tiara we, we lost, where a federal judge in Washington entered an injunction that barred us from posting uh, the files online because the license we had from the government was now nullified by the court's order. 
So as a result of the court's order, Cody had to take his website down. He was no longer in compliance with federal law. And that's more or less where we are right now. This has been a bit of a blitz and a saga that's been going on for, for quite some time. Yes, I, I heard that well, you did one of the hearings uh, while you were in the United Lounge waiting for a flight. You know, when a judge says, I want to have a hearing in one hour, you have the hearing in one hour. And I have to be at LaGuardia Airport, which I think Vice President Biden said was like a third country. I think he's right about that. And I managed to find some solace in the United Lounge. Uh, and I basically did the entire hearing from the lounge. I had no notes. I had nothing to repair with. I, I barely had any time to think about it. But it was a pretty remarkable day. And uh, I was able to convince the judge to not enter a nationwide injunction, basically. But I said we will block um, IP addresses from Pennsylvania so that people in Pennsylvania can access the site. The judge accepted that representation. And he just he let us put in a limited blockage. But we kept the site up for the rest of the, uh, rest of the world. That status quo lasts for two days. So that was my, my, my second victory in this case. Um, but it was a very tricky deal. Uh, the judge wrapped up the hearing about five minutes before my flight boarded. So I, 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 just, I just made it in time. Well, uh, we at R Street are not big fans of United Airlines. In fact, there's a policy that we don't <laughs> fly with them. So I, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about that, but it is impressive nonetheless. Uh, let's back up for a second. Just talk about... 3D printing, I think, uh, for me, I, I think about that. I think of, you know, those uh, replicators on Star Trek or something like that. I don't have a huge amount of knowledge about it. So, you know, how, how exactly does that, does that work? You, like, download the file and the gun pops out? So the process of 3D printing, I describe to making a candle, right? How do you make a candle? You take a wick, basically a string, and you dip it in some wax. And you leave it there for a second. You pull it out, and you dip in the wax again. And you pull it out, and then you repeat this process a number of times. And each time you dip the wick in the wax, the base of the candle gets a little thicker and thicker. Another another layer is added to it. And eventually, if you dip the wax enough, you have a nice thick candle. 3D printing works in the same way. You lay down one layer of plastic, lay down, you lay down a second layer of plastic, and lay down a third layer of plastic, and each each layer of plastic is a different size and shape. So you're actually building one layer on top of the other to create an object in three dimensions. It's a remarkable process. You can create everything from organs to homes to cars, even guns. The hardest part of this is designing the item on a computer to actually explain in three dimensions what you want to create. And once you do that, it's a very effective uh, tool to to generate items. Okay, uh, that I think that makes sense. It, you know, there's there's several stages here. The first first stage, you know, you're dealing with uh, the federal government itself, uh, the D, the DOJ, um, and, and uh, I guess the there's a couple weird things about this. One is the law in question that they were citing to prevent uh, defense distributed from from publishing these files was a was. Technically, it's some sort of export ban, something like that. So, so the I guess the issue is technically it was legal for U.S. citizens to download the files, but because you can't restrict it to the internet, uh, that was the that was kind of the hook that they were using. The State Department has this old arcane regulation, which allows it to regulate the export. That's the word used of technical data. Now you can imagine back in the '70s, if you wanted to send the blueprints for a nuclear submarine to China or Russia, right? That would probably be a pretty, pretty big deal. Um, but in the modern era, this this provision doesn't have the same sort of salience. 
because so much information is disclosed in the public domain. This is not the blueprint of a nuclear submarine. These are the blueprints of an open source firearm. Um, in 2013, the Obama administration was the first to apply this provision to the sharing of information on the Internet. And we were in court litigating that for three years. And we argue it was a violation of the Constitution to regulate posting of uh, files on the Internet. That was beyond the government's power. And ultimately, they settled with you. Uh, obviously, I mean, you don't have to characterize uh, their motivations if you want. But to me, oh, it's, it's, sort very, of seemed... it's very easy, actually. You know, there's been a lot written that this was a settlement based on improper means and that Trump capitulated to the gun lobby. My God, I wish. <laughs> the Trump administration's position towards the Second Amendment is virtually indistinguishable from that of the Obama administration. Look at the briefs they filed in the Supreme Court on Second Amendment cases. There really hasn't been a shift. But the reason why the government came to us with the settlement is actually pretty obvious if you know something about export control law. For the last eight or nine years, the federal government has been shifting control of exports from the State Department to the Commerce Department. Why? Because the Commerce Department has more staffing. They can process licenses more quickly. It, it's very simple. So what the government wants to do is transfer control of these sort of firearms from state to commerce. One of the effects of this is commerce doesn't regulate export controls of data. So you don't need a license to put data on the Internet. So it made no sense to keep Cody and defense distributed under this old State Department regime when everyone else will be moving over to the Commerce uh, uh, Department regime. It's really that simple. You noted that the administration's position on uh, Second Amendment issues is not that different from the Obama administration's position. Uh, Trump, of course, I think tweeted something about uh, the case that was not that positive. Uh, but I guess the, the one of the interesting things here is that when you get right down to it, even though it's it's about guns, it's probably less of a Second Amendment issue than a, a First Amendment issue. Uh, in fact, I recall, you know, when I first heard about this case, the thing that, that uh, came to mind to me was uh, this old document called the, uh, the Anarchist Cookbook uh, that I, in my misspent youth, I actually had a copy of this, and my mom found it. I got in a lot of trouble. Uh, but, you know, this is a this is a document that had um, basically instructions on, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff that you could do, uh, you know, how to make plastic explosives, how to how to uh, commit credit card fraud, you know, all, all sorts of stuff that uh, much of it illegal uh, or at least, you know, stuff that wasn't legal, you know, socially undesirable stuff. But even even something like that, you can find copies of it online now it's published by amazon or whatever it, it's legal i guess to sell because you're not it's, you're not selling the plastic explosives you're just it's just speech or instructions so is that do you think that do you think of this as is kind of more of a, a first amendment case here than a than a second amendment case without question this is primarily a first amendment case the government has in the past tried to regulate some speech that can facilitate crimes, but I think the speech at issue here is far too attenuated from crimes because under federal law, it's perfectly legal to make your own guns. People may not know this, but I can go to Home Depot or Lowe's or any hardware store, buy $15 worth of parts and make a rifle. Really, PVC piping and a shotgun shell, you can make a firearm, maybe with a nail. It's not that difficult. Under federal law, it's perfectly lawful. So Cody's putting online speech that can be used to... Uh, make a gun, and that that's lawful. Um, it could also be used to study. It's been displayed in art galleries. It's been displayed in museums. It's been studied in universities. It's, it's a work of art. It's, a, it's actually a beautiful construction. So there are lots of artistic, scientific, social value to it beyond simply making the firearm. 
Well, couldn't uh, states or the federal government still regulate the selling of a 3D printed gun uh, independent of the First Amendment issues? Yes. So some states have actually banned firearms without serial numbers. And the federal government also bans firearms that are so-called undetectable, that they lack metal. Uh, plastic guns aren't new. If you watched the Die Hard movie 30 years ago, there was a scene where Bruce Willis was talking about a plastic gun. Or, or maybe it was a ceramic gun, actually. So plastic guns aren't new. We don't, we don't contest in this litigation that the government can prohibit the actual manufacture or possession of plastic firearms. Our position is they can't take the additional step of banning the sharing of files used to make those weapons. Okay, and so eventually, I guess on the fourth go-round, they, they finally managed to find a... They were successful in getting the temporary restraining order, even though, among other things, I read the statute and it says there's no judicial review, so that's that's kind of weird. But I guess the the argument that I saw online and that I think was, was made in this application was... You know, it's an irreparable harm type argument, which is, you know, uh, it's going to be, you know, if you allow publication of these documents, there's no, you can't unring the bell, as it were, and this stuff is going to be out there, and there'll be nothing to be able to uh, be done about it. You know, I can't get too much into the into the current litigation because it's it's still very much pending. Um, what I would note, though, is that the court didn't find uh, that the order was in any way a prior restraint of speech. Uh, in the in the in the judge's mind, and I argued this case. He said that I'm not ordering your client to take the website down. I asked him, but judge, as a result of your order, it will now be illegal for my client to post this information. He said, "Yeah, too bad. Uh, you know that 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 that's up to him what he wants to do about it." I think I think it's problematic. What the judge in Seattle did was he reimposed a prior restraint that the government sought to eliminate. Uh, you can dress up however you want, but before that court's ruling, all Americans could share information, and after the court's ruling. They couldn't share that information. I'll let you argue exactly what happened in those, in those intervening hours. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Um, so I think, you know, just kind of like from a big picture perspective, the thing that I think uh, has people, the reason that this got so much attention uh, and that, and that the, you know, there's such a sense of urgency here is, you know, the idea that even if you could make your own homemade guns before, uh, that it, you know, it would. It, it's a very cumbersome and uh, artisanal process, uh, and the the technology, even if it's not there yet now, it, it raises the prospect of some sort of easily replicable, uh, untraceable way to make guns that would, you know, render unenforceable any sort of existing gun laws. So, you know, I, I guess it, abstracting away from uh, the specifics of this case. Are there ways consistent with uh, the First Amendment that states would be able to continue, uh, consistent with the First and Second Amendment, that states would be able to continue to regulate firearms even if you had this sort of technology that was out there and maybe even if it got a lot better? Well, I think I think the short answer is the Internet can't really be regulated. You know, countries like North Korea and China perhaps try with government-based filters but there are so many ways of bypassing it. I think the government should focus its efforts on the end result, which is the actual possession and manufacturing of the firearm. I am very skeptical and indeed worried if they take the threshold step to simply ban the files on the Internet and prevent people from sharing. Giving the government the sort of power to censor the Internet, I think, would inflict far more carnage and, and, and harm to our national polity than these plastic guns, which frankly are not very accurate, not very reliable, and they're a lot more expensive than buying a gun in the black market. 
um, you know, you always have to balance the competing harms. And I'm much more worried about censorship and state judges taking down the internet than printing out one of these little dinky plastic guns. Well, let's uh, let's turn now and talk a little bit more about uh, your your judicial philosophy. You're a professor. Um, and uh, I understand you're an originalist. So what? tell us a little bit about your jurisprudence, and also would you talk a little bit about what it's like to try to uh, persuade young people these days that they should uh, appreciate and uh, be devoted to the Constitution? I'm blessed that my full-time job is to teach law students about the Constitution, and I'm also blessed that they get to speak at maybe 30 or 40 law schools a year to a wide range of audience about the Constitution and why it's important. In addition to my ability to teach in law schools, uh, I'm also the uh, the president of the Harlan Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit dedicated to teaching high school students about the Supreme Court and the Constitution. And every year we host a virtual Supreme Court tournament. Where we give a, we give the kids an actual case. We act and write briefs, and we have to make arguments. And we fly the top two teams to DC. Oh, I'm sorry, we do the arguments over over. Google Hangout, and we fly the top two teams to D.C. to actually have a, a moot court session. And I can tell you, the tournament last year, one of the judges presiding was a guy by the name of Brett Kavanaugh. And he he judged our tournament last year. I don't, I don't think he'll be able to judge us next year, but I'll I'll, I'll research that. <laughs> and uh, the case the kids argued was the Carpenter case, which is about cell phone privacy. So we were very grateful Judge Kavanaugh could judge that. So uh, you mentioned uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Do you have a perspective on his nomination? Oh yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy. I mean, I, I I made this point throughout the entire process. President Trump put out a really good list, and. I could have thrown a dart at that list, and I'd be happy with whoever he picks. And I think Brett, Brett Kavanaugh is a wonderful selection. Um, I think I think he he's an originalist. He's a he has a firm foundation of separation of powers, and I think he'll be a, a worthy successor to Justice Kennedy on the court. So uh, my mom listens to this podcast. Uh, hi, mom. And hi, mom. Uh, one of the things that she said is, you know, sometimes uh, we mention terms or ideas uh, that the, the layperson may not be familiar with. So we've mentioned originalism a couple times. Could you? just give like kind of you know a, a basic summary of what is originalism and how does that apply as far as what judges do originalism is a fairly simple idea to understand a legal text we have to understand how the words were understood at the time it was drafted so if we use some words today they may have one meaning but the same words may have had a slightly different meaning in the 1800s or in the 1700s originalism tries to give meaning to the Constitution's text based on how those words were understood at the time, not based on modern, conception, uh, modern conceptions of decency and wholeheartedness and love and, and joy, but how the framers have understood it. And the reason why originalism is an important framework is it tries to remove you know, modern avarice and modern inclinations from a document that was not ratified in modern times. If we don't like what the Constitution says, there's a way to change it, which is the amendment process. But judges should always strive to, to, to interpret it and give it a Instruction that's consistent with its original understanding. And this was the uh, philosophy that Justice Scalia, our, our, our late great Justice Scalia, uh, made so prominently. I suppose, you know, it's interesting because you're talking about what these terms meant, you know, back in the 1800s, 1700s, or whatever. Obviously, we are talking about uh, several technologies that didn't exist then, you know, uh, 3D printing, uh, you know, advanced firearms, uh, other stuff like that. Uh, I, I suppose you would say that the constitutional provisions are are general enough that the original meeting uh, can can be uh, adapted or applied even to situations very different from anything that the founders themselves could have uh, imagined. Well, 
the Constitution we have was meant to endure for generations. Um, its text doesn't always speak to whatever present-day situation we have. However, it's a framework. You know, for example, we didn't have computers back then. We didn't have internet back then. But we had the idea of the freedom of the press and the freedom of the speech. And those same principles can be applied to modern conceptions. Uh, you could search a home. You could also search a cell phone. Um, so the, the text and history of the Constitution goes a long way to resolving a lot of the disputes we have today, um, especially with the structural provisions of the Constitution. The stuff about the Bill of Rights, again, is usually very fluffy, free speech, free religion, you know, whatever. But the structural provisions, those are forever. We know what that means. And we know when a one branch tries to take too much power from another branch that it that it goes too far. So cell phones might not have existed when the uh, the founders published the Constitution, but slavery did. Um, the founders uh, compromised on the issue of slavery. How do you, when you're teaching uh, these young law students, how do you instill respect for the founders and for the Constitution despite this glaring uh, moral compromise? Well, the answer is actually fairly straightforward. We had two foundings, not one. Two, the first founding was in 1787 when the Constitution was drafted, and the second founding was in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified. Following Reconstruction of the Civil War, we ratified three amendments. The 13th Amendment, which eliminated slavery. The 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal protections of the law. And the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed the right to vote without regard to race. Um, the Reconstruction Amendments completed the founding in many respects. They cured a lot of the evils that exist since 1787. So it's hard to speak of just the founding as a bunch of white guys in wigs in the 1780s. Uh, but we also had some white guys in knickers in the 1860s. And I think they did a, they went a long way to transform our republic into the more perfect union that uh, that it's become. So as a, as a law professor, you also get involved in uh, these other cases such as this uh, defense distributed, um, so much so that uh, Weekly Standard recently described you as dizzyingly industrious. And Shoshana Weissman had this to say. Josh Blackman is baller. I, I, I sent the $20,000 payment to her office, so she'll receive that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm blessed that I have this job as a law professor, and it means my salary is more or less guaranteed as long as I show up to class and beyond that I can do, you know, whatever I think is right. And that allows me to um, participate in a wide range of litigation activities. I do a lot of amicus briefs. I do a lot of actual arguing cases, which I did in the past week. Um, I get to write articles. I get to write op-eds. I get to blog. It's, it's a very special job. You know, how do I decide what to do? Um, it's, a, it's a very tough question. I often ask myself that. Generally, I keep my eye open for not just what matters now, but what will matter at some point in the future. Um, there's this quote that's been attributed to Wayne Gretzky, although he didn't make it up, that the reason why Wayne Gretzky was such a good hockey player is not because he is where the puck is, it's because he's going through where the puck will be. And I see my career in a similar fashion. I don't just dwell on whatever is hot today, but I try and take a few steps towards where I see the puck going. And, uh, you know, I got involved with the emoluments clause litigation. I've been involved with the three different guns before it was that big of an issue. I've gotten some stuff on Mueller that will become relevant very soon. Uh, yeah, I always try and stay a couple of steps ahead of everyone else. And that way, when the, when the, when the proverbial crap hits the fan, I'm already there. Right. Well, you, you, you mentioned that you're looking forward to the future. And one of the things that seems to be happening now is um, as people become more prominent, uh, people start digging through their tweets. Last week, I saw that there were a couple of uh, a yeah. couple of baseball yeah. players. Uh, I think one of them had uh, pitched nearly a no hitter, 
and somebody went back and found a, a tweets from when he was a teenager. And uh, it's pretty well publicized what happened with Kevin Williamson being hired by The Atlantic, then fired for his tweets. And then this week, uh, The New York Times hired uh, Sarah Jiang, um, who's now uh, causing quite a ruckus uh, on the right by some of her tweets. So, you know, with this in hindsight, uh, you know, what, what tweets are out there that you would like to go ahead and apologize for, for your insensitivity and the inappropriateness? You have the right to remain silent, Counselor. <laughs> you, you know, you know, you're you're being facetious, but I've actually considered doing that at some point. Twitter has a uh, function that lets you download all of your tweets, and at some point, I like to go through them and basically flag any tweets I thought were dumb or intemperate or or, or, or in poor judgment. Um, you know, I have I have I've been tweeting now for 2009. I have. I mean, I think I have about 50,000 tweets. I'm certain that at least one of those is dumb and that a mob could come up out of nowhere and try and destroy me for it. I think it's a, it's a sad, sad state of, of affairs um, when, the, when people's careers can be just destroyed um, overnight based on some dumb tweet they made years ago. People change, people evolve, and people often say stupid things. Um, this doesn't end well where a person's career is destroyed after one minute. Okay, well, uh, on that happy note, uh, I think we'll we'll end it. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Good luck with your endeavors in and out of the classroom going forward. Thank you so much. Well, that was an interesting conversation. Yeah, I uh, I think that there's been a, a lot of hype and a lot of uh, sensationalism about this whole issue of 3D printed guns, but I think that uh, Josh was able to tie it back down to earth and make it a little less sensationalized. Uh, I know for myself, uh, sort of preparing for this uh, podcast, that I talked to several of my uh, gun guru buddies, and I, I kept asking the same question. Would you entrust the safety of yourself and your family to a 3D printed gun? And, and generally, I was getting back lots of LOLs. Um, I asked one friend who actually assembles um, ARs what he thought of a 3D printed AR, and he responded with one word, which is simply crap. So I don't think that the uh, the Second Amendment crowd is going to be too interested in actually using 3D printed guns as much as they're interested in sort of the First Amendment issues and. Uh, heading off any restrictions on gun rights. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the interesting thing for me is perhaps not this case uh, itself or the technology that's at at issue here, which does seem to be maybe um, uh, not as advanced. You know, the the, uh, First Amendment issues are perhaps a little bit more straightforward uh, than than you might have heard. And and the technology, it sounds like, has a long, long way to go. Interesting question for me is, you know, down the line as uh, 3D printing technology, if it if it becomes more uh, advanced and streamlined, how does that affect the, you know, maybe the maybe the equation changes in terms of uh, what people are, are willing to bear or what the alternatives are. So it was interesting to talk about and think about, OK, uh, if, if the technology did improve, what does that mean in terms of uh, restrictions on guns? You know, uh, 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 other enforcement mechanisms, uh, which, of course, you know, the, there's other ways to deal with that. Uh, I think that uh, Professor Blackman mentioned. Well, well, on one hand, I, uh, I, I even if I had a personal 3D printer and was able to create my own gun, I think that I would uh, I would prefer to outsource the risk 
and sort of the product liability, if you will, uh, uh, to say Springfield Armory and, and trust that they've got the quality controls down. Uh, obviously, a, a firearm is used to inflict harm on somebody else, but what I don't want it to do is inflict harm on me by you know ex- exploding in my face. And <laughs> I want to I make sure it actually uh, hits the target that I'm aiming at. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to probably uh, prefer to outsource that to somebody who's actually in the business and has a history of doing it rather than doing that myself. On the other hand, um, I suppose in, in this age of uh, putting tariffs on everything, uh, I guess if I can 3D print a gun, maybe that saves me some tariffs on uh, maybe Glocks and uh, uh, Sig Sauer's. Right. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe can you can you 3D print steel and aluminum? <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Um, so. There are a couple other items that we wanted to talk about, you know, just kind of unrelated to the 3D printing issue. Well, you had mentioned a story that uh, that there's a, a proposal to change the name of the city of Austin. Talk a little bit about that. What it is, is the city had tasked, you know, one of its internal agencies, the equity office, something like that, tasked them to look at streets and other parts, uh, buildings, other things in the city that are named after Confederate officials, right? So this is part of the whole thing that we had a while ago, the Confederate statues, uh, Robert E. Lee statues, Jefferson Davis statues, other things like that that have been taken down. So they, they uh, Equity Office came out with this report and, and they listed a bunch of street names, other things that could be changed. But then they also said, hey, you know, the city, we might want to consider changing the name of the city of Austin itself because Stephen F. Austin Austin, even though he was not a Confederate, he died before the Confederacy came to be. Uh, he was still, you know, a racist and uh, was in favor of slavery and and all sorts of stuff like that. I I say when I when I read this, I I kind of half wonder whether this is a bit of a a false flag, not to get too Alex Jonesy, but the the idea of changing the name of the city is so absurd. Oh, and then they also want to change Barton Springs, the name of Barton Springs, because Barton, I guess, was also bad, which, you know, if you know anything about Austin, changing the name of Barton Springs is, you know, about as close as you can get to, uh, you know, Austin blasphemy. Uh, so I, I did kind of wonder, like, you know, is this sort of like, they're putting this out there to discredit the entire idea, you know. Oh, you want to change? You want to change the names? Well, then we might, you know, we'll have to rename the city too. But it's also possible that they're just that crazy because uh, the city government there often is pretty crazy. Well, for me, I, you know, I've I've lived in Texas for over 20 years, but my dirty little secret is I actually grew up in the Midwest in Indiana, so I don't really have the nostalgia for the land of Dixie, and so this isn't really something that's sort of near and dear to my heart. If I were, you know, if I were African American, I think I would probably feel very strongly about these issues, but, you know, this isn't really uh, something that I'm that emotionally invested in. But I will say this, people are flawed and once you start going down this road and you start renaming things you know whether it's moving statues renaming airports whatever it may be um, you know where's the end of it because everybody is flawed and uh, you know sort of to go biblical on it um, David was called a a man after God's own heart and uh, you know the thing about David is he actually had a man sent into action to be killed uh, so they could have that man's wife even a man that was called a man after God's own heart uh, was deeply flawed. 
And so I think there's a lesson there for us. If we're going to start judging people of the past, we have to understand that they're flawed people just like us. And maybe we need to show a little bit more grace. Or on the other hand, maybe we need to start moving, you know, removing the statues of David from Michelangelo. Or maybe we should ask the Israelis to, to take the Star of David off of their flag. But I think that once you start going down that road, it's like there's really no end in sight to how, how you might uh, have to revisit the entire past. And if you do that, if you whitewash the past, so to speak, um, I think that you are doing a disservice to future generations where you're not doing an honest read of human history and just how complicated we all are. I think that's right. Uh, obviously, you could have you know special cases. I, I think that there was a, a Robert Lee Elementary School in Austin that got renamed because the the school body was you know the a large majority of the school body was African American. Uh, I can kind of see why you wouldn't want to have you why why you might want to change the name and of course schools and streets get renamed all the time but there does seem to be an element of the slippery slope here that you know next thing you know uh you know we're having to re- rename whole cities uh because Stephen F Austin had a bad tweet or something right well um I think this was a really entertaining uh conversation with Josh Blackman and I know that we have some good topics coming up I believe next week we're going to be recording a piece on uh on energy and electricity and uh, some of the uh, future episodes are going to have to do with uh, free speech and right to try as well as an upcoming episode on smart cities and I guess you could say youth politics Uh, we'll delve into what exactly the conservative movement is doing wrong uh, in terms of their messaging to uh, younger voters yeah it should be pretty great Uh, we are on iTunes officially now so go subscribe uh, and give us a five-star rating and put in a review if you have nice things to say and uh, we'll see you soon. Shoshana's not here. <laughs>